Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. Quit. You should quit. You know, how, how come it's only unemployed people that tell you to quit something, huh? <laughs> well, no one with a job ever tells you to quit. So I thought about quitting. I thought about it real hard. But I realized they're going to have the Oscars anyway. They're not going to cancel the Oscars because I quit, you know? And the last thing I need is to lose another job to Kevin Hart, okay? I don't need that. Kev, Kev right there. Kev make movies fast. Every month. Porno stars don't make movies that fast. (laughs) Now, the thing is, why are we protesting? That's the, the big question. Why this Oscar? Why this Oscars, you know? It's the 88th Academy Awards. It's the 88th Academy Awards. Which means this whole no black nominees thing has happened at least 71 other times. Okay? You got to figure that it happened in the 50s, in the 60s. You know, know, in the 60s, one of those years, Sydney didn't put out a movie. I'm sure... I'm sure there were no black nominees some of those years, say 62 or 63, and black people did not protest. Why? Because we had real things to protest at the time. You know? We had real things to protest. You know, we're too busy being raped and lynched to care about who won best cinematographer. You know, when when your grandmother's swinging from a tree, in acting, in 
bitch track. It's not. Come on. There's no reason. It's not track and field. You, you don't have to separate them. You know, Robert De Niro's never said, I better slow this acting down so Meryl Streep could catch up. If you want black people every year at the Oscars, just have black categories like best black friend. That's right. And the winner for the 18th year in a row is Wanda Sykes. This is Wanda's 18th black Oscar. But here's the real question. The real question everybody wants to know, everybody wants to know in the world, is this Hollywood racist? Is Hollywood racist? You know, that's, that's a... Uh, you know, you gotta go at that the right way. Is it is it Burning Cross racist? No. Is it Fetching Some Lemonade racist? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a different type of racist. Now, I remember one night I was at a fundraiser for President Obama. A lot of you were there. And, you know, it's me and all of Hollywood. And all the, you know, it's all of us there. And there's about four black people there. Me, uh, let's see, uh, Quincy Jones, Russell Simmons, Questlove, you know, the usual suspects, right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, and every black actor that wasn't working. Needless to say, Kev Hart was not there, okay? So, at some point, you get to take a picture with the president, you know, and as they're setting up the picture, you get like a little moment with the president. I'm like, Mr. President, you see all these writers and producers and actors? They don't hire black people. And they're the nicest white people on earth. They're liberals. Jeez. That's right. Is Hollywood racist? You're damn right Hollywood's racist. But it ain't the racist you th that you've grown accustomed to. Hollywood is sorority racist. It's like, we like you, Rhonda, but you're not a kappa. That's how Hollywood's, yeah? But things are changing. Things are changing. Yeah, we got a Black Rocky this year. Yeah, some people call it Creed. I call it Black Rocky. And that's a big, that's, that's an unbelievable statement. I, I mean, because Rocky takes place in a world where white athletes are as good as black athletes. So Rocky's a science fiction movie. Everything's not 
They ask the men more because the men are all wearing the same outfits, okay? Every guy there is wearing the exact same thing. You know, if George Clooney showed up with a lime green tux on and a swan coming out his ass, somebody would go, what you wearing, George? Okay, so they told him if you're going to do it, you better fucking speak up for black people. And that's what he did. Anybody's paying attention. Okay, gotcha. In his infatuation with a young woman named Maria Elena de Hoyos. It was a love affair that persisted not only in life, but also beyond the grave. And that proved that beauty really is in the eye of the beholder. Carl Tanzler was born in Dresden, Germany in 1877. Although he grew up in Germany, he spent much of his adult life living in India and Australia. When World War I broke out, he was held prisoner by the British military until the war was over. When he was released, he was barred from re-entering his home country, so he headed to Holland and spent three years living with his mother. Until 1926, when he sailed from Rotterdam to Cuba and eventually made his way to the United States. Settling in Zephyr Hills, Florida, where he was later joined by his wife and two daughters. The next year, Tanzler left his family and relocated to Key West, where he got a job as a radiological technician at a U.S. Marine hospital. On April 22, 1930, a 20-year-old Cuban-American woman named Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos was admitted to the hospital where Tanzler worked. Described as strikingly beautiful, she'd always had her fair share of admirers and had even been married when she was 16, but was abandoned by her husband after a miscarriage. Tanzler was immediately enamored by her, but to Tanzler, it was more than just a simple crush. When he was a child, he claimed to have been visited by visions of a dead ancestor who revealed to him the face of his true love, a face that he recognized as that of Maria Elena. As she grew more ill and was eventually diagnosed with tuberculosis, Tanzler made it his mission to save her. He convinced his superiors to allow him to conduct his own experimental treatments on her. He used all kinds of elixirs and tonics, and even an x-ray machine that he had installed in her home. He also showered her with gifts of jewelry and clothing. She tolerated his infatuation, but by all accounts, it was a one-sided love. Despite the doctor's best efforts, Oyos died on October 25, 1932, in her parents' home in the Key West. Tanzler paid for all of her funeral expenses and hired a mortician to embalm her. He even went as far as to build an expensive stone mausoleum for her. Unbeknownst to Elena's family, Tanzler retained the only key to the mausoleum, and for two years, he visited the tomb as often as he could. Rumors about his obsessive visits to her grave grew so rampant that he was fired from his job. After two years of frequent visits, Tanzler decided to take his obsession to the next level. In April of 1933, he snuck into the cemetery at night and stole her body, transporting it out using a toy wagon. He brought the body home and began work on preserving it even though it was already very badly decomposed. He fitted the face with glass eyes, used wire to hold the bones together, mixed plaster and wax fabric to replace her rotted skin, filled her body with rags to maintain the shape, and made a wig out of her own salvaged hair. To top it all off, he applied formaldehyde and perfume. As the corpse continued to decompose, Tanzler would constantly replace the decaying skin with silk cloth soaked in wax and plaster of Paris. He lived with the corpse for almost seven years. During that time, neighbors reported looking through his window and seeing him dancing with what they thought was a giant doll. They also found it strange that he would frequently buy women's clothing even though he lived alone. To top it all off, he was building a spaceship to fly himself and Elena into the stratosphere believing that she would be rejuvenated by the radiation. In October of 1940, he was finally confronted by Elena's sister. The body was discovered and Tanzler was arrested. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was deemed mentally competent enough to stand trial. The trial was a media sensation and drew huge crowds. During this time, 
Elena's corpse was examined by doctors, and according to some reports, they discovered a paper tube that had been inserted in the vaginal area of the body that was used for sex. However, these claims have been disputed, and it's still unclear whether any necrophilia actually happened, but I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that it did. Charges against Tanzler were eventually dropped because the statute of limitations had expired on his crimes. After the trial, Elena's body was put on display at a funeral home, and over 6,000 people paid to see her. When the commotion died down, Elena's body was buried in the Key West Cemetery in an unmarked grave. As for Carl Tanzler, he moved back near his wife in Pasco County, Florida, but was never able to shake his obsession. Using a death mask of Elena, he constructed a life-size effigy of her that he maintained in his house until his death in 1952. If you like this video, Please subscribe to Cryptic for more. We'll During my first years at Florida, I had bought myself a piece of land, had fenced it in, and built a road across the land, and even laid the foundation for a house. The Florida boom, however, was quickly followed by a crash, and it became necessary for me to earn a living by using my old faculties as a scientist. The Marine Hospital at Key West employed me as a pathologist and x-ray specialist. I built up a fairly well-equipped x-ray department and peace of mind in scientific work until that fateful day of April 22, 1930. In the middle of my routine work, I received a call from the head office to go and take a blood test from a young senorita who, as an outpatient, had come for examination. I hardly looked at the patient as I entered the room. The first thing I noticed of her personality as I bent down to take a drop of blood from one of her fingertips, rather than one of her ears which were too exquisitely lovely to mar, was that her hand was unusually small, its long, tapering fingers the loveliest I had ever seen. As the needle struck, the hand twitched a little, and it was then that from my kneeling position I raised my head for the first time to say, I'm very sorry to have caused you pain. Forgive me, please. Her face had been hidden by her hands so that I had hardly seen it as I first entered the room. But now she withdrew her hand to answer me, and I looked into a face of unearthly beauty, the face of my dreams and visions, promised to me by my ancestor forty years before. I was so thunderstruck I hardly heard her say, It didn't hurt much. Excuse my nervousness. Her voice was soft and sweet and childlike. It reminded me of a mockingbird song in spring. She spoke with a Spanish accent, yet her English was cultured and quite good. Having performed the duty for which I had been called, I had no excuse to stay any longer in the room. Feeling very shaky, I arose, and much too confused to say anything, I merely bowed myself out, not knowing whether I was walking or dreaming. Back in my lab, I sat for quite a while lost in the memory of the apparition in the old castle and in the Campo Santa, and above all, my seven days with her in Sydney, Australia, at the time of my father's death. Yes, it was she whom at last I found in the flesh, and for proof that she really was alive, I held in hand the little glass tube with a drop of her red blood. A nurse brought me the record sheet for me to enter the results of my test. There was nothing much the matter with her blood, but it gave me a shock to read on the top of the record sheet the Mrs. before the name Elena Hoyos. So she belonged to somebody else. Was there a curse upon me that after this search of four decades had come to an end, I should lose her again at the very moment I had finally discovered her, my promised bride? Even so, I felt indescribably happy. What, after all, did it matter if she belonged to another? Hadn't I also belonged to another years ago? Our relationship had never been of an earthly nature. Over all these years, what was there in a husband's name or even in a husband's existence? All this had very little to do with me and Elena. The main thing was that I had found her and that she was ill and that I was best qualified and in a position to help her. I saw her the very next day when she came in for more tests and this time I took a radiograph of her lungs, which brought me the painful revelation that she was suffering from tuberculosis. From the frailty of her figure, from the listlessness with which she sat, I had suspected that much the very first day. 
The certainty which now was gained increased my worries because our hospital was not adequately equipped for the treatment of lung TB. Yet some way had to be found to help her. A fierce determination to aid her, to bring her back to health, was burning in my soul. Both Elena and her mother could not fail to observe my deep interest in her case. They invited me to the family home, and, needless to say, I went there that very evening. It was a very small and rather dilapidated house to which I came. The family was poor. Elena's father worked in a tobacco factory. There were two sisters, all very different from Elena. Her mother, a good-hearted, if simple woman, and numbers of young people in all ages whose relationship to the family I could never quite ascertain. Elena, sitting very quietly and obviously feeling far from well, in a chair in the kitchen shone like the sun amongst all these lesser human stars. She and everybody else received me with great kindness and, best of all, the husband whom I had expected to find wasn't there. As the family secret was soon revealed to me, Elena and her husband had separated as he had been responsible for her suffering. It was probably only human that this fact filled my heart with joy. Also, it filled me with deep pity when tears welled up in the beautiful eyes of my Elena, and she pointed to a car as it passed by the house. There he goes, he who was my husband. He now lives with another girl. Impulsively, I took her hand between mine and said, Don't worry over it, and don't worry about anything anymore. From now on, I am going to take care of you. She thanked me with a happy little smile, and like a child, she said, Yes, doctor, I'm sure you will. Days later, I went again to her house in order to take a blood test. This time, I was led by her mother into her room. There, to my utter surprise and joy, I discovered hanging over her bed a picture of St. Cecilia playing the organ. The same St. Cecilia to whom I had brought roses in the catacombs of Rome. Still treating me as if I were a teacher, which I indeed was, and she my little pupil, Elena said, That's St. Cecilia, sir. Yes, and you know, Elena, she is my guardian angel, and this is the first time that I've seen her picture here in America. We too, said Elena, are not Americans. We came from Cuba several years ago. And in a blinding revelation, I now had the explanation for the spell under which I had watched the carnival in Havana four years ago. And I also had won the certainty that it was my guardian angel, St. Cecilia, who had brought me and Elena together. All this great inner happiness notwithstanding, my worries as a doctor mounted steadily. Since our hospital lacked the equipment I wished to use for Elena, and moreover, I considered the Florida climate as unfavorable for her condition, I proposed to send her at my own expense, of course, to some famous TB institution abroad, where I was reasonably certain that she would be cured. This offer she refused because, in the first place, with the euphoria so typical with TB patients, she did not realize at all the seriousness of her condition. This left me only one choice. I had to procure at least the electrical equipment to treat her right on the spot. I wrote to several firms for the necessary apparatus, and some of it I started building myself. In the meantime, I decided to give her radiation therapy with the hospital equipment, although the service outfit was not powerful enough for deep radiation therapy. Whatever was left of my spare time I spent on the completion of an airplane I had started to construct some time ago. Once Elena had regained her health, this plane was to take the two of us to a South Sea island which I had discovered for myself during one of my fishing expeditions in Australia. This was a little paradise, and my dream was that Elena and I should spend our honeymoon there. Every time she came to the hospital for treatment, we took time out to inspect the plane together. Those were moments of great delight for both of us when we sat side by side in the little pilot's cabin and imagined how it would be when it carried us into the air and across the ocean. What name are you going to give to the ship? she asked. 
I wish you would permit me to name our ship La Condesa de Cozel. Elena blushed, for this was the first time I had intimated my wish to marry her. All right, she said. Let's name her Contessa Elena. Her 21st birthday approached. I had high hopes now that she would accept me as her suitor, as she had allowed me to buy the ring. I brought it over that day, hidden in a big bouquet of roses. I also brought cakes and wine, and we had a wonderful day together, all the more so because nobody else seemed to have remembered the birthday of my Elena. Next in importance to the ray treatment was to build up her physical strength. Every day now I brought her fruit and some of the finest medicinal wine I could procure. I even went to the priest because he was able to get the kind of wine for me which I wanted for my sick Elena. With these combined means, the tubercular infiltration for the time was checked, even with the minor equipment of the hospital, and Elena's general condition was improving. In fact, she told me that she didn't really believe that she was sick at all. I cautioned her as best as I could, but unfortunately her family too arrived at the wrong conclusion that their daughter was now cured and that my continuation of the treatment was more or less a pretext to be as much as possible with Elena. To disprove this, one day, I showed her my microscope and I showed her few slides with the little red rods of the bacilli. Naively, as a child, Elena fancied that I had painted those red rods on the glass. There was no use arguing because the poor child was enjoying a sensation of well-being, a result of the healing hormones which were stimulated by the x-ray treatment of the tissues. Not for anything in the world would I have robbed her of her high hopes, certain as I was that they, these were destined soon to fade again. Elena always undertook more work than she could afford in her condition. Thus it was one day when the family invited me to the wedding of Elena's sister. When I got there late in the afternoon, the marriage ceremony was long since over, but an enormous party was in full swing. The little house was overcrowded with guests, all eating and drinking, and as the hostess for all these people there acted my Elena, she hardly took time out to take me by the hand to introduce me to the groom and guests, before she carried on carrying the trays around, serving the drinks, operating the gramophone, and doing a thousand other tasks. It was agonizing for me to sit there by the side of the bride, trying to entertain her as best as I could, while, through the clouds of smoke, through the laughter and the gramophone songs, I heard the dry cough of my Elena, who should rest her lungs above all. The evening seemed like an eternity. It was near midnight when the guests departed, and my exhausted girl sat down for a moment by my side. Elena, I said, I admire you. You are the most wonderful hostess in the world, but this sort of thing just can't go on. Permit me to help you. Let's get married and let's get away from all this. Before she could answer, her mother, whom I had not seen all evening, stood in front of us. No daughter of mine is going to marry an American. It is to be a Cuban, if ever she marries again. With her head bowed, my Elena sat in silence. I took her hand, and all I could say was, God bless you, and good night, my Elena. The next time I went over, I brought her a pearl necklace. I had sent my big radio console to her house, hoping that good music would cheer her up. Whenever I found her in a depressed mood, which was often, I took out of my pocket some new present for her. One day, a large pendant of rock crystal, the next a pair of earrings, and again a beautiful carved rose of pink coral on a gold chain. And almost every day I wrote her letters, wherein medical advice was strangely mixed with my love for her. My darling Elena, please don't deceive yourself that all is well, even if you feel that way. Don't throw caution into the wind. Your enemy is an invisible one. He can only be seen by trained scientific eyes, and he can only be fought in a scientific manner. Please, darling, do not listen to irresponsible advice. I know there are quacks around who are suggesting all kinds of magic cures, which have their common source in ignorance. Please take the medicine I am sending, and do come back to the hospital for a new checkup. Dr. Lombard, too, wants to see you. I am working on our airplane in my spare time. 
It is now nearly completed, and the next time you come, I will give you the key for the cabin, and we shall officially christen it. And then, too, I am already collecting all the things we are going to need on our wedding trip. Silk dresses for you, and a bridal gown which is all white silk, and all the rest of your trousseau, even lingerie and silver slippers, and last but not least, all of your medicines, like chinosol and adrenaline, glucose, beef extract, and all the rest of it. Forever yours, Carl. It seemed, however, harder to get Elena to come over to the hospital. One day, her excuse was that her father temporarily had no car. I sent a taxi over. Still, she refused, saying that she didn't trust the taxi company. My own car had just been stolen, so I borrowed another. But even when I came myself to fetch her, Elena would not come to the hospital. It dawned on me that some kind of an opposition had developed against me and the hospital people within her family. That this was only too true was proved a little later when again I found the house crowded with young Cubans, even married with happy families, noisy with radio music and full of cigar smoke. I could not help to observe how Elena suffered and it made me mad. I told them they should at least refrain from smoking. This hurt the Spanish pride of her father. The old man made quite a scene about my interfering with his guests. My daughter is quite well, and if you don't like the smoking, why don't you get out of the house? That settled things for the time at least. Elena's eyes followed me as I left the house as if to say, suffer it for me. Not to see her was torture, and to be unable to do anything for her was worse. Night after night I dreamed of her, until after a week I got a little note from her. Key West, September 10th, 1930. Dear Doctor, I am so very sorry because I know how unpleasant your last visit to our home must have been. Please do forgive us. I'm sure Father did not really mean what he said to you. He had been on edge all day and had been very cross with everyone. Please understand that he didn't mean to be that rude. Both my family and myself would be only too glad to have you as our guest again. So please, accept my apology for the other night. You must see us soon. Your friend, Elena Hoyas. After that, of course, I could not stay away. What did I care after all about what her people said or did? Her life was so much more important than a physician's pride. Nobody smoked in the house this time. Nobody was there except Elena and her mother. I found my Elena in an appalling condition. She lay in a state of serious convulsions, trembling and gasping for air. Her mother kept her covered with blankets. Determined to find out what had happened, I insisted on an explanation. The frightened mother finally came out with the truth. Elena had just been brought home from another doctor who had been giving her injections for the past few what kind of injections, I asked, and who is the doctor? She gave me an empty vial and named the doctor. This is a thing, of course, which many patients do, to go behind the back of one physician to another. This man was not a quack, but since he was not informed of my treatment and had started on a different one, the two of us worked at cross purposes, and the harm to the patient was being done. I got immediately in touch with the other doctor and we agreed that the injection should stop. The next test I was now able to make of Elena showed a decided positive albuminaria. Her condition had rapidly worsened. It made me almost desperate, this ignorance and underhanded play which had undermined the resistance of my girl. Nor can I approve of medics who keep on pumping drugs into the circulatory system without constantly checking on the actual reactions. It means to work in the dark. Besides, it interferes with a healthy blood and has an upsetting effect to the curative effort. In this manner, my poor Elena was needlessly made to suffer. Almost blindly obedient to her parents, like so many Spanish girls, she had followed their advice, trusting implicitly that it would be for the good. She was a good child, my Elena. Too good indeed for these well-meaning but ignorant people who simply had the old superstitious idea, the more medicine, the better, and if one doctor doesn't help, another will. Worse even than this outside interference was something which I can hardly call by any other name than a conspiracy not to permit my girl the so much needed rest. 
Scores of cousins thronged the little house at all hours of the day and night. Incessantly the radio blared, and some sort of a celebration seemed always to be going on. Instead of enjoying the quiet of a hospital which should have been hers, Violeta was damned to live as if in a railroad station. For a long time now, I had realized that there was only one way to have this radically changed, and that was for me to marry her. Time and again I told her so, but she always gave me the same answer. But we can't marry, dear. I am not divorced yet. And even if I were divorced, you can't marry a sickly girl such as me. First, let me get well again. All right, my darling. I have patience if you have. With much persuasion, I managed to get her once more to the hospital. There I took another series of x-ray pictures which made it absolutely clear that her lungs had worsened. I also took a slow, bucky diaphragm picture of the trunk, including the larynx and thorax cavities. To make the best of it, I simultaneously gave her a good general radiation. Dr. Lombard, who knew of my great interest in Elena, came over and enjoined me in entreating her to come for treatment regularly. To no avail. Knowing that we would reach this impasse, I had already prepared to give her high-frequency, violent ray treatment in her own house. Since I could not use hospital equipment for the purpose, I had built by my own hand a high-voltage transformer for her and had bought another instrument from the Betts Company in Indiana for her use. But when on my next visit, I proposed to have this apparatus installed at my expense, of course. The whole family turned against me. I was bluntly informed that my services were no longer required. I was accused of painting far too black a picture of Elena's health. It was hinted that she was making much better progress with the aid of patent medicines and that all this newfangled electrical apparatus was devil's work. That night I returned home a broken man. I had fought with all the persuasion in my power, but the wall of faces which confronted me had been like a wall of stones. For the past nine months now, I had overworked. My day belonged to the hospital, my evenings to Elena, my nights to work on the airship, and on the million-volt transformer for Elena. This last blow that I should be unable to attend to her did the rest. I came down with Bright's disease and lay in the hospital for the next six weeks. Dr. Lombard's skill in the end restored my health. All I could do while I was helpless was to dream of Elena, and these dreams became more and more frightening. Once I saw her, very pale and dressed in rags, walking alone behind a high iron fence, as if of a penitentiary. I found myself on the other side and cried to her, Oh, darling, I am so happy I found you at last. Run, darling, run quick. For farther down the iron rails, I can see a little opening between the bars. It's just big enough for you to crawl through. She held her arms out as if to embrace me. I could drink one kiss from her lip. Then she started running and came following me along. It seemed like an eternity until we arrived at the place where one of those bars was missing. And there she came out into my arms, kissing me. When I wrote her about this dream, she instructed her sister to go to the hospital and tell me to dream no more. On Christmas night, 1930, I dreamed I was in Mother's home. Suddenly she rose, saying she would just go to the next room and be soon back again. She disappeared into the music hall, which was quite threateningly dark, and all of a sudden the roof collapsed and came thundering down, and I saw Mother buried under tons of stone and rafters. I rushed to her aid, searched everywhere to find a shovel, and nowhere was there a shovel. From this dream I woke up bathed in cold sweat and with the feeling that my mother was no more, which soon proved true enough when the death notification arrived. I must relate a third dream because of its connection with later events when I took my Elena out of the grave. I had wandered into the countryside just outside Key West and had come to a deep gulch with lots of underbrush on the embankment and water at the bottom. There I saw what looked like a bundle of clothing and discovered that it was a human body with a head buried in the mud. The dress looked familiar and as I quickly slid down the embankment, it really was Elena. I turned her over and her face was covered with blood and mud. I washed it with my handkerchief, always rinsing it in the water. 
and at last her features became clear, and I could see that only the bridge of her nose had been broken, but that there was still life in her. I took her into my arms and laid her on the higher ground. There I did everything to bring her back to life and at the same time to clean her dress. I needed water so I stepped down again into the gulch and saw all of a sudden that there were more bodies lying in the muddy stream. Men, women and children, but they were all dead and in a bad state of decay. I counted 37 bodies in all. They made my hair stand on end because I thought they must all have been murdered and dumped and hidden here. So I fled and took the unconscious body of Elena in my arms to my laboratory. I had just placed her on the x-ray table to examine her for internal injuries when I woke up. So began the year 1931, with threatening dreams and signs important. The invisible was warning me and in my convalescent state I felt forever more deeply depressed. This probably reflects in the notes which I sent Elena. Darling, if you have any willpower left, please use it in the right direction. Concentrate everything on your health. Please do come over for treatment before it is too late. Let me see you again, Elena, I implore you. So often you have said that I am too old for you. But listen, darling, I never count my years. Neither do I count yours. If you were a mummy, 5,000 years old, I would marry you just the same. I swear, it's not for selfish reasons that I want this marriage, but because I can do so much more than a boy your age. I can offer you my science, my experience, my capacity to save your life, and this apart and on top of my undying love. You want to get well, don't you? And you want to see the world, don't you? You wouldn't imagine that this little Key West is the world, or that the life you are leading is anything like life could be. Oh darling, I would take you to my South Sea Island, or to the big cities of Europe, or wherever you want to go. Only do come and let me care for you again. Darling, I've seen a girl dying in her home yesterday. Now I can't rest. I must tell you that she died from the same disease you have because she was already beyond help when she came from Havana Hospital. Let not this happen to you. You have every right and every faculty to get well again. Let me implore you, take warning, please do cooperate with us and do not waste away this precious time. On February 2nd, 1931, to my indescribable joy, Elena came to see me. She had put on her very best dress, and she had cut off her beautiful long tresses, and now wore her hair coiffured in the American style. Her presence did more for me than just to have her sitting by my side in the waiting room than months of treatment. We couldn't say much, for as usual, there were a host of female guardians around, but then it wasn't necessary to say much. For her eyes did speak. After she had left, the mailman brought me a black-rimmed letter from home. It went to say that my mother had died in the Lenten days. Now I knew what higher power had sent Elena to me on this day. It was to comfort me and strengthen me for this impending loss. My health in return with the depression of my mind remained because on my very first walk to Elena's house I found it deserted. Neighbors informed me that the family had moved but nobody would volunteer any information where to. From house to house I went and everyone shrugged shoulders so I couldn't help but realize that the neighbors had been warned not to reveal the new address to me. I buried myself in work as best I could, automaton-like. Night after night, I wandered through the town, peering secretly through the curtains of those innumerable little houses of the poorer sections, always hoping to find her, and in vain. Her silence was wearing me down. One night, an elderly Spanish lady beckoned to me from the porch of her house, and coming near, I recognized in her a woman I had seen with Elena's family. Your girl is very, very sick, she told me in a whisper. The family has moved there and there. Elena is now in bed all the time. She needs you, but her parents won't let you come. I tell you what, doctor, it's a crime. Don't you pay any attention to the old folks. You just walk in, and if you are still able to, help her. Wait, 
I'll just lock my door and then I show you the house where she lives. I thanked her from the heart and then without a moment's hesitation, I burst into the house, which the kind lady pointed out to me. If anybody had tried to stop me, I think I would have used violence. Right in the hallway, I saw her sweet little face looking straight into my eyes from a chair far in the kitchen corner. I cried, Elena, let me come in. Yes, doctor, do come. I'm so glad you are here. She was dressed in a silk kimono I had sent her for Christmas, but I saw immediately the pale color on her cheeks, the light in her eyes, and the emaciation of her body. The only thing to make me happy of her appearance was the fact that she wore my diamond engagement ring. Presently, of course, Mother and some more of the family came into the room and stood there in silence. I simply said, Good evening, good evening, Mother. I am so happy I found my Elena again. Tell me, what doctor is attending to her now? Angrily, her mother burst out. I am her doctor now. I laughed a little bitterly. You are some doctor, Mother. I am sure you are a good nurse, but not a doctor. I have come to stay. From now on, you might as well consider me in charge for good. I left them standing open-mouthed and turned to my bride. Please, darling, tell me whatever you wish or need at the moment, and I will go and bring it to you. I should have said it before how very modest Elena was at all times. Though she needed practically everything, she would never confess to it, and so it was now. I don't need anything. Taking her pulse, I felt that it was weak. The breathing shallow, the general appearance was anemic, and a certain debility indicated disturbed blood circulation. Knowing how easily she took offense, I did not tell her that apart from improper treatment, she had an abscess on her leg caused by so many injections by another doctor. Lest she should become overexcited, I spent only a few minutes in the house. Then, with a mixture of relief and sorrow, I left and spent the night with preparations for a determined campaign to save her life despite all obstacles. Before I could start, new tests were needed, so the next day I brought armfuls of fruit and little delicacies which, as I knew, would stimulate my girl's appetite. I was quite shocked to find how weak she had become. She only took a little fruit for, when her mother brought her a cup of good chicken broth, I noticed how Elena secretly emptied it out into the bucket near the bed. I also brought her a jeweler's catalog and told her to select anything she liked in it and which she wanted. This too was done to revive her interest in life. She marked a bracelet watch, a necklace, and a wedding ring and told me, but only one. I do not want all three of them. Naturally, I ordered all the three for her. This gesture brought the family into a more cooperative mood so that they were more agreeable when I brought my electrical apparatus over for the treatment. Because I knew by now the superstitions of these people and anticipated their resistance when I arrived with the heavy artillery of the million-volt transformer, I started with a small apparatus and tried to get them used to it in a playful manner. I placed the little inductor box and showed Elena how it worked. It had a dry cell battery for power and a small movable shocking coil with silk cords and brass handles. Elena sat in her bed, her eyes bright with curiosity. I placed the handles and told her how to slide the coil for weak and then pull it for strong and how to operate the little switch. Then she took the handles. Do you feel anything? No, she said, but my darling was cautious. She wanted me to test the electricity myself. After this was done to her satisfaction, I moved the coil slowly to strong until the current tickled her and she cried for me to stop. Delighted and thinking that it was great fun, she said, Call Mama and Nana, Carl. They all came and Elena played the joke on them and made Nana jump and so she made her mother. Gradually then the family, if it did not acquire much scientific knowledge of electricity, was at least convinced that it was fun and did no harm. That evening I noticed for the first time that Elena coughed quite severely, was short of breath, and had a sinking temperature. Throat medication therefore became my next step. I had prepared two kinds of throat sprays and solutions for rinsing. When I brought this, by good luck an old Spanish lady was with her. 
She was the only woman who from the beginning had been on my side. Elena, I must say that much, was not an easy patient. Tiny particles of the spray in the form of mist settled on the sheets and pillows, and Elena found that the odor did not appeal to her. Take the spray away, she said, as far as possible. I can still smell it. Then she turned to the old lady. Take this pillow out, Granny. Take the sheets out, too, and give me a new nightgown. Santa Maria, exclaimed Granny. What else? It was a pity she didn't like this fluid. It was most potent to counteract TB. The other one had a more pleasant odor, but then she disliked the taste. I had dissolved $20 worth of pure gold and brought a sample of this solution for Elena to take a drop of it in her drinking water. She liked the looks of it, but again, she couldn't stand the metallic taste. My old sorrows of having my sick girl in what practically was a railroad station came back with a vengeance. Not with malicious intent, but from sheer curiosity to witness all this strange apparatus I had brought and how it worked, relatives, friends, neighbors in droves gathered around the sick bed. They generally sat and lounged as near as possible on and around Elena's bed, with the result that one night the whole bed broke down and my girl suffered bruises and a severe shock. She begged me to buy her a new bed, but not another iron one. She wanted a wooden bed with high closed ends for protection, so the people couldn't crowd her from all sides. Besides, her desire was for an inner spring mattress and a dresser of her own, things she had never had before. For the first time we were alone that night, the collapse of the bed had put the camp followers to flight. The following afternoon, the furniture company delivered the bed, the best and biggest bed I had been able to find. Soon afterwards, there came another van with the largest mosquito top I had ordered, and sheets and silk cushions and pink and blue in the dresser. Well, my darling was as happy as a princess in the fortress of her big new bed, and playing with a briefcase full of banknotes, which I had brought her checkbooks of the Reich Credit Bank and Key West State Bank from the German inflation with millions and billions of marks. I smiled. It did me good to see her happy as a child and enthralled with the illusion of being a multimillionaire. Don't forget that I still want to marry you, darling, I said. Oh, Carl, I wish we could, but I think I'm going to die. No, darling, you mustn't believe that. You won't be going to heaven for quite a while yet. I am not going to heaven. I am not good enough. I think I will be going to hell. In that case, dear, I will be going with you too. Wherever you go, there I'll go. But I am sure that if you die, I'll take you in my arms, and the good Lord will take us both into his heaven. She motioned me to a little truck which was standing in the corner. Bring this over, Carl, will you please? Raising herself in the bed, she took from the bottom of the little trunk a Spanish fan and opened it. I used this when I was still able to dance. At last, she took out a couple of photographs. They were bridal pictures of herself and her former husband. She looked at them and then handed them to me with a gesture of despair. Take them away, Carl. It makes me sick to look at this. I do not know what folly made me marry that man. Cut him off my side. She handed me a pair of scissors and I did her will, cutting the husband away from her side. She then told me to burn his picture in the kitchen stove. That was the first indication she gave that she did not love him anymore and of her willingness to let me take his place. If I must die, she said at last, all I can leave you is my body, for I am only a sickly girl. So I can't marry you while I am sick. But you will take care of my body after I am dead, won't you? I promised I would, and it was the most sacred promise which I ever made in life. I kissed her then and laid her gently back into her cushions and put her feet high so as to get blood circulation back into her head, for the breath was getting short. This was what I consider as our marriage vow. The latest test revealed that the laryngeal TB infiltration had made rapid progress. I found it necessary to move the ray equipment I had bought for Elena into her room. 
My own home-built million-volt equipment I was unable to use because it weighed tons and would have necessitated the laying of concrete foundation in Elena's house. The machine I had bought was a high-power, high-frequency medical unit with violet ray equipment, fulguration and photo-examining attachments. It was strong enough to induce artificial fever. This now I placed near her bed and plugged the connection into the light socket. I switched on the Tesla coil and hooked it up with one of the throat vacuum tubes. Elena watched tensely every one of my movements when I adjusted the apparatus so that it showed only the faintest blue light in the tube without any sparkling. I then asked her to open her mouth wide and to hold still while I slowly inserted the tip of the glass tube until it almost reached her tonsils. For a while, she was very patient, but when she became nervous, she moved a little, which, of course, had the effect of a little hot bite from the frequency sparks on her tonsils and top. I withdrew the tube whenever this happened, and I heard her pathetic little complaint. The electricity has bitten me. Towards the end of the treatment, I noticed that her breathing had become normal, and she had found great relief. I left the spark discharge on the wide gap for another hour. In this manner, her room was charged with enough oxygen electrons for a whole night's sleep. The next night, I applied 5-minute larynx radiation with the ultra-electrode tube to prevent dyspnea. Then, exchanging the electrode for a surface tube, I gave the outer surface of throat and chest and all-over high-frequency radiation for 30 minutes with medium strength. She enjoyed this, as she would have a bath. It did her a lot of good because this radiation stimulates the tissues to new activity. Again, there was pronounced absence of coughing, and her voice was stronger. I feel so much better, Carl, she said. Perhaps I can soon go out a little, and my first trip will be to church. To keep her hope alive for this outing, I went to Holtzberg's store the next day and selected six Sunday silk dresses for her and also silk stockings. Tests showed a slight improvement. I began to become a little more hopeful. The next time I laid her on the autocondensation cushions and placed one sponge electrode on her chest, gradually increasing the high-frequency current until the milliampere meter showed 400. I let it stay there and told her to cry out when it began to burn. I watched her heart beat and breathing, and it was just 10 minutes when she called. Oh, Carl, it burns. Then I gently reduced the flow of electricity to zero. Her body temperature had increased between one and two degrees above normal. The pain in the chest had disappeared. Breathing was normal, but naturally pulse was fast. I covered her up with blankets and told her to rest. Again, she was all right for the night. The next day, her family told me with many complaints that Elena had nearly choked that morning and expelling a large plug from her lungs. Personally, I was delighted because the good results I had expected from the diathermic treatment had begun to show. The removal of the plug gave her more room to breathe, but it was too bad that the family interpreted this result just the other way around. Ignorance as usual. She don't need any electric treatment, cried her mother. You are running up a high electricity bill for us, shouted her father. And who is going to pay for that? In vain, I protested, of course. I would pay the bill for the electricity, whatever it was. The outcry was, get all these devil machines out of our house. I confess that I lost my temper. Will you take the responsibility to let your daughter die through your stupidity? Her mother burst into tears, covered her face, and left the room. Worst of all, I heard Elena calling from the adjoining room. Oh, Carl, you have hurt mother. I am sorry, darling, but it was necessary to tell her the truth. All this was terrible because from now on I was again up against the stubborn family resistance which sabotaged my efforts. For a few days the coughing was stayed, but since Elena refused any further treatments, it now came back and so did the hoarseness which made her almost unable to speak. I had sent her a new radio with an amplifier microphone into which she could speak in a whisper and yet be heard. How pitiful it was that she would always gladly accept any such gadget but refuse what really could help her condition. Once she had made up her mind that she did not like a thing, it was final and I could only desist. Pressure on my part led nowhere. 
In her weakened condition, her hearing had become very acute and hypersensitive. All the more did it pain me to see her suffer when a radio across the street was always being played full blast and father filled the house with all the Toms and Dicks and Harrys of the neighborhood who were noisy and forever nosy about the equipment around Elena's bed, crowding her and cheating her out of her last chance in life. I had to prepare for the emergency of a hemorrhage which now could be expected any day. I had tested my own blood and found that it matched Elena's. I kept my equipment for blood transfusion in readiness and sterilized at all times. I was ready to give half of my own blood as a last resort. To relieve her at least from the radio blare, I had my little organ moved over to her house. Now I sat down evenings and played some of the soft old harmonies such as Palestrina. Of food she took almost none except for fruit which she enjoyed, especially limes. She was able to eat those with relish, skins and all, and this gave me a little happiness because limes are a sort of antidote against the tuberculosis. Nature asserted itself in this instinctive craving for needed remedy. If only her will to live could have been stronger. Do what I might, she was by now convinced and resolved that she was going to die, and nothing I could say to the contrary would break this conviction. It was those many ignorant people who told her that tuberculosis patients all die. Also, she must have felt the serious deficiency of her chest inwardly. One day, when I had lunch at a restaurant in town, I overheard a conversation in a nearby booth. People who couldn't see me talked about Elena's illness and that her family and friends planned to have her removed to some mental asylum out of town because she wanted to become Catholic. I was horrified at that idea, and so as to protect her against any trickery, I immediately wrote the following statement, to whom it may concern. This is to testify that Elena Hoyas is my wife, and that her mental status is normal. She is perfectly sane and under the medical care of Dr. Lombard and myself. I will not tolerate any interference or her removal to any institution or asylum. Signed, Carl von Kozel, pathologist in the public health service. I wrote this because my duty kept me at the hospital during the daytime. I brought her the letter that night and advised her to keep it always under her pillow and to produce it only if anybody should try to remove her from her home. More than a hundred times throughout these trying months, I felt sorely tempted to get some of the more obnoxious visits by the scruff of their necks and throw them out of the house. Only the thought that violence of this kind was certain to harm Elena made me restrain. It was particularly bad at mealtimes when her father brought in some fat proprietor of a local bar who would keep on talking to Elena in rapid Spanish while she held her bowl of soup between her little hands and it was getting cold and her fingers cramped and she was too polite to eat. Only once after waiting 20 minutes did I muster the courage to say in plain English, don't pay any attention to that fellow. Go right ahead, Elena, and eat your soup. She looked at me as if hypnotized and the fat man left in a rage. She ate the cold soup from the bowl. The fascination of that barkeeper was that he flashed a loud diamond ring before Elena's eyes. In such matters, she reacted like a child, admiring it. So the only way for me was to outshine this diamond. I had one just as big on my own hand, but had never flashed it about. I put it on her hand next to her wedding ring. Would you like this one, darling? She nodded. Here you are, darling. I give it to you with my love. She blushed with joy and would hardly permit me to take this ring. Ring to a jeweler just for a day to have it fitted to her finger. Look, mother, look here. Now I have a real big diamond ring, she called happily, forgetting her misery for a time. But when, on October 11th, 1931, I handed her the sparkling toy, she was so weak she could hardly smile, and she was nervously asking, did you bring my ring? Yes, darling, here they both are. I placed them on her finger, the solitaire diamond first and then the wedding ring next to it as security. Calling her mother and holding out her hand, she said, Look here, mother. Oh, I'm so glad. You have five rings now, her mother said. She still has five other fingers left without a single diamond, I said.
Her mother laughed, going back to the kitchen. Then I asked Elena if she had any pain, and she said, No, I am all spent. Father took me out for a walk to Celia's house, one half mile, to see her radio, that's all. Darling, you simply must not take such walks. They drain your strength. You might collapse in the middle of the road. Get well, and your airplane is waiting for you, and we'll go together any place you like to see. She promised it should not happen again. Friday, October 16, 1931. I came to the house and found that Elena was not there. Mother informed me that the father had taken her for an auto ride to town, and she would be back in half an hour. In great anxiety, I waited, and when the old Model T Ford at last arrived, her father carried my girl in his arms and put her in a chair. She had fainted on the way back, and now she sat limp and pale, looking at me from sunken eyes as if to say, Help me, please. Help me, Carl. Life was fading fast. Gently, I picked her up and put her back to bed. There she took off all the rings from her fingers and piled them in a little heap. I won't have those now for very long. I placed her in Trendelingburg position. When the color returned into her face, I left her to seek out the father. Knowing that this ride had very nearly cost Elena her life, I was in a holy wrath which had to come out. I motioned the father, who contentedly was smoking his pipe, to corner with me behind the house out of earshot. There I told him without mincing words that another ride like this might spell the end of his daughter. But why do you think she should not take auto rides? Because it will kill her. Take my word for it. He laughed aloud. Auto rides will never kill anyone. Friday, October 23rd, I found my darling in a very exhausted state. She was too tired, so I left soon and in utter depression. Yes, it is true that people can learn only by experience. But all too often, they get the experience only after some irreparable harm has been done. In my distress, my only comfort was that the family opposition against me now finally seemed to be broken down. I had hopes to resume the radiation treatments. I had hopes that, despite the extensive damage, the lesions would begin to heal again. I had hopes that, when Elena was out of danger, we would get married. As long as she lived, I never abandoned hope. You end up being quiet. Man finally shut the fuck up.